Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. What's up, everyone? Welcome back for your third edition of Collider Forces with someone who I'm very excited to have on the show right now, Greta Lee. I'm a big fan of a lot of your work. I feel like I'm not getting ahead of myself to say that Past Lives is going to be one of my favorite movies of 2023. Oh, wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. I mean it. I mean it. This is this one is really something else, something special. And I I feel like from Sundance to now and ultimately beyond, it's making a big lasting impression on people. And I love hearing it. Oh gosh. It's this is like totally overwhelming, to be honest. <laughs> the best <laughs> the best kind of overwhelm. I have something that that might be like kind of good overwhelming for you right now. Cause the only thing about Collider Forces I didn't warn you about is that we started off with a game called Dicey Questions. Oh yeah. So I have a dice, I have a dice tower behind me. You get three rolls on the tower, and each number corresponds to a random question I have. And whatever I roll for you, that is where we start. Great. I'm ready. Dicey questions <laughs> All right. come at me. Brace yourself. First one up. All right, we're kicking this off with a number six. Number six is must-haves. What is something that you absolutely need to have with you when you're on set filming? Is it your sides, a water bottle, a favorite snack, you name it? It's like a small handful of almonds. (laughs) I respect that quite a bit. And there are other things that are being consumed, but it's something like a panic uh, like a, a panic threshold of just just knowing in my pocket that I have food that can provide some sort of caloric something um, gets me through my day. <laughs> I very much understand. Like almonds are good for you. I have to imagine they give you the necessary energy boost too. So they say, you know, I'm going to admit, I don't always even end up eating them. Like they're almost not for eating. They're just so I know it's a relic in my pocket that I have. I love how probably like the costume department goes through like your pants at the end of the day and just finds almonds in all of your your uh, your pants. Totally. Yes. That's great. That's great. All right. I have your second roll in the tower now. 
All right, we cannot do the same number twice. So we're moving over now to a number one. This is my new favorite question. Okay. It's very silly because okay. this happened to me recently while I was preparing for an interview. And I think it says a lot about someone. So this one is called Spider. You are home alone. You okay. see a gigantic spider. What do you do? Shudder and scream. It's true. I know spiders are good. I know spiders have a really good PR rep. I understand how essential they are to our biology, to our to our whole our ecosystem. But I, when I'm alone, I, I am not a fan. Not a fan of the spider. See, I'm okay with this answer because I, I prefer shudder and scream versus like smush it and trash it. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm the double. I'm the double cup person. I double cup it and I bring it outside. You don't want to touch. You don't want to no. touch. Forget it. Yeah. Absolutely not. All right. Your third and final roll in the tower. We are wrapping this up with a number seven. Ooh, this is a good one. I love this one. This is this is what we're calling this. It's favorite, least favorite. I want your absolute favorite part of the acting process. Rehearsing, stepping onto the set for the first time, you name it. But then I also want not necessarily your least favorite, but a part of the process where, you know, you see room to grow for yourself and maybe try something new. My favorite part is just starting the scene and realizing 99% of my job is just to listen to the other person. There's this expectation that, you know, you have to gear yourself up and present something and, you know, invent something new and um, energetically just, you know, get like an outpouring of, of what you can do and, you know, all kinds of like flourishes and magic tricks and and then when it comes down to it, every single time I'm reminded, all I have to do is listen, is listen to the other person. And it's such a relief. Uh, and it and it is, it's really, and then it becomes thrilling because then you feel like anything can happen. Everything you'd prepared, all of my psychoses, all of it goes away. And it's kind of this fun blackout mode where you're just existing with this other person. I love that answer so much. I'm definitely backpocketing that idea and I'm going to apply it when talking about your co-stars in past lives. But before we get there, we go back to the very, very beginning. What is the the movie, the performance you saw, the personal experience you had, you name it, that first made you say to yourself, I absolutely have to be an actor and nothing else? Oh my God. I think that, um, oh, I am, uh, uh, there are some movies that, I'm watching, this is going to be maybe, maybe surprising, but Val Kilmer in the movie, The Saint. <laughs> this is the last reference I thought I, I would hear. I know, but, but hear me out. I, there's something about that performance and, and, and as a little girl, um, watching, I just, I could, it, I, I wanted to be able to one day tap into that kind of like athletic performance of ability. And if you remember, if, if you remember from the movie and maybe you don't, because not everyone is like an extreme saint head like myself, he plays a multitude of different characters in such an exquisite, fully immersive way with so much commitment. And I just felt like as a girl, like if I could do that, like I, there was something that was just electric about that. And I w remember feeling distinctly like, oh my God, I want to be like Val Kilmer. <laughs> 
Like, I still feel this way. It's still. This is one of the best answers I've ever. Every single one of these interviews starts here. This is one of the best answers I've ever heard to that question. <laughs> I respect all of that. So Val Kilmer inspired you. And then ultimately you went on to study communication and theater at Northwestern. I'm curious about your decision in terms of where you went after that. Why in particular choose to go to New York and not Los Angeles? Okay, because after I wanted to become Val Kilmer, then I wanted to become a really serious artist with, you know, real gravitas like James Earl Jones. And and I just <laughs> and I felt like, well, there's no way that I can I like I need to go to New York City. I need to become well-versed and immersed in stage work. Um, and I need that training and I, I got to go where the real artists are. And, you know, I, it, it, my relationship, the idea of like me being the next James Earl Jones has certainly evolved in my mind. Uh, but I really, I just, it, New York city, it just represented this idea of like being part of something that's so much bigger than you. Um, and that's where, that's where it was for me in New York with, with James Earl Jones. <laughs> this is very, very random. And the answer might be no, but do you watch Yellow Jackets? Oh my gosh. So I have not yet, I, I, but I know all about it. So I'm ready. This isn't a spoiler. There's one little bit, and I started to ask this question repeatedly, where one of the character asks, if you could pick uh, three famous people to have a slumber party with, who would you pick? And now all I can picture is you having a slumber party with James Earl Jones, Val Kilmer, and then who would be your third? Oh my God. I mean, I would say, I would say Maggie Chung. Um, I would like to throw her into the mix. I feel like she's had an extraordinary career, but you know, like she gives zero Fs, you know? And I, I would love, I mean, she, she is also someone early days. I just seeing her and her work, it just felt like, oh my God, I've never seen anything like that before. Um, and um, I don't know. I feel like she would give the other two like a run for their money. Really like, you know. I don't think you could have picked a better group of influences there. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I love that combo. So you're, you're in New York. At that point, did you ever think that you were going to fully commit to stage work and not screen work? Oh, yes. I was, I, I started out doing Broadway. Um, I was in a show called Spelling Bee. Um, and then I, I also did this play called Labette with Mark Rylance and David Hyde Pierce and Joanna Lumley. Um, and at the time, I kind of was just moving towards where the work was. And it felt very much like I'm going to go where I'm chosen to be. Um, and it wasn't until I came up around this incredible time of young women, um, mostly in the comedic world, uh, Lena Dunham, Amy Schumer, Abby and Alana of Rod City, obviously Amy Poehler and Tina Fey, um, who were really creating the space where I was able to work. Um, and I'm so grateful for that. And, and it, like everything I got out of that and, and playing these ridiculous characters who I love so dearly. Um, but that was instrumental to, you know, the formation of like my little artist self at that time. So those were a whole bunch of wonderful names you just dropped. I want to add one more. And it's funny that I already mentioned Yellow Jackets because I'm going to bring up Melanie Linsky because I wanted to ask about your very first film. And it happens to be a film I love. Hello, I must be going. Yes. It must be wild to have your first 
feature film experience acting opposite her of all people. So what were some takeaways from that experience? And maybe did it set any expectations for you going forward in terms of what it would mean to work on a film set? She really is the ultimate. I She takes the cake for me in terms of a, the type of woman who is so grounded, is so uh, humble, but so invested in her craft. Um, and it's she it's like watching someone stand in their gift. And I remember at that time really being struck by her. And it wasn't even just the work when the camera was rolling. She just really has this warmth um, and curiosity that you it's apparent in her, in everything she does. Uh, and I also remember, yeah, she was so, so nice to me. I mean, that's also just like not always a given, you know, I think I had like just a couple of lines and a couple of scenes and she understood because she's been through the ringer and she's been working for such a long time, like what that's like, that sometimes that's even harder to step in cold and, and deliver a line or two. Um, it, it, yeah. And so I'm, I'm really grateful to her. I just saw her again um, at a, what was it? I don't know. Maybe it was a Vanity Fair party, but it's it's surreal to reconnect with her now after all these years. Yeah, she is one of my absolute favorites in this business. And I feel like whether you've gone through that experience of having that type of role in a production or not, you should always treat everybody that way. It's so true. It's so true. It affects the work. It just makes it all better. It really does. With without a doubt, with a, actually here, here's someone I'll jump to next who kind of leans into that idea. I want to ask about Russian Doll and in particular working with Natasha, not just as the lead of the show and as a scene partner, but as someone who is also the, the co-creator, a writer, a director, an executive producer, basically someone who has you know a significant amount, amount of power when it comes to establishing like the atmosphere and the tone on set. I mean, she, I learned a lot from watching her take on, wear so many hats. Um, I have full respect for the ability to just the, the, the wanting to even take that on at all in the first place. Um, I remember days when we were getting ready to shoot a scene and she was having to learn her lines, like almost like it was an afterthought to the experience. Like, she, she was directing and producing and she had written it. And then she had to learn her own lines that she had written. And just so like her level of, I mean, extreme professionalism and stamina and she could do it so quickly, but just acknowledging, wow, like this is wild to have to do so many things at the same time. Um, I, yeah, I really loved watching her do all of that. So I have another burning Russian doll question. Yes. How many times did you actually have to say the line sweet birthday baby on set? Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> well, you know, in answering that question, I initially said no to the job because I thought there's no actor in their right mind who will be willing to take on how to do a good job of delivering the same line over and over again. I thought there's no way anyone can come out of this and and feel like they they've like come close to 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 doing it. And I had even suggested that we just film it once and we just reuse that take. <laughs> and then when I said, okay, I'm I'm, I'm in, I, and I couldn't say no to this group, of course. Natasha and I go way back. We filmed a pilot for NBC that it's was kind of the genesis of Russian Doll, actually, years ago. Um, 
and Leslie Headland, of course, and, and Amy Poehler. I mean, just these incredible women. So I said yes. And then they politely and gently said, no, absolutely not. We're not going to use the same take over and over and over again. <laughs> so I don't know. I think it was like 50 times. I mean, I'm trying to think. I mean, there were 10 episodes. I said it multiple times. I mean, it was a lot of times. It's just like every single time you said it and it was captured from a different angle. I'm yeah. just like adding them all up. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, you, like they approached it like it was a different movie in a way every time I had to say it. So I couldn't just throw it. I couldn't just like, you know, be on. It's very effective for like, seriously, for what it's worth from my perspective, it's one of those things that I can like, I can only hear those words as you say it now. And, and I like it because it brings me right back to that loop and the experience of going through that show. <laughs> I love that. I really can appreciate that. And because for me too, like I cannot hear those words. Like I can only hear them from Maxine's voice. And also that it just like for all the actors out there, really think about that initial choice you're making um, of how you're delivering that line. Cause you never know, you may end up having to say it that way a million times. And you may wonder why did I decide to say it that way? <laughs> It felt like they were all said with purpose to me, and I love them. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Um, here's a question I've gotten in the habit of asking quite a bit. But when you are first coming up in this industry, it can be challenging and scary to speak up. So do you remember the very first time on a film set or on a TV show set where you started to notice the the power and the impact that your voice could have on the characters you play and also the project overall? Oh, that's such a good question. I'm still working on that. I, as as a woman and as a woman of color, that is a constant battle and internal negotiation. Um, how to correctly and succinctly advocate for myself without the burden of worrying about it. Am I coming across as a diva? Am I being, am I taking up too much space? I mean, I really have so much compassion for other women and other, anyone who has felt any sort of outsider status at the workplace. It's just the reality of the job. Um, I guess I'm just, I'm trying to think about, I have like improv to think. There, there are some moments where I'd felt, um, you know, what's on the page, we can do better. Um, we can flesh this out a little bit more. And I would like to volunteer my own services 
I would like to help with that. Um, so certain characters, um, I, I felt really lucky that it was an environment where I had people being so supportive. Oh, like sisters. I remember playing the role of Hewan and um, Amy Poehler suggested that we that they let me improvise. And an entire scene of that movie is because in the nail salon is because she advocated for that. So in a way, it wasn't me advocating for myself. It was, it, it was Amy. But I think then in that moment, being able to step forward and, and, and grab it and do it, um, I'm grateful for that younger version of myself who was, who was so game to do that. It's the thing that keeps building and building. One person does it for another and they, they pass it forward, pay yeah. it forward. And, yeah, and also it's really one of those things where you keep learning more and more about how to use your voice as you go forward. Yes, exactly. It's an ever evolving thing, you know? Yep, absolutely. It is something that I love exploring myself as well. All right, let's jump into to past lives officially. So the first thing I wanted to bring up was I was watching another interview you did where you mentioned that initially you were turned down for this role, which is absolutely mind boggling to me. I have quite a few questions about that. First, I was wondering at the time, and I guess with what the role turned out to be, do you think it was a matter of that initial audition not aligning with the with what the role seemed to be then and then the role having changed and what you initially did fitting the new version of the character? I think, and since then, I've had uh, conversations with Celine about it. And initially, I mean, according to her, she initially had written the scripts with the final triptych of the movie ending with the characters. They were like 20, 25, I believe. Um, that's because the story, the movie is semi-autobiographical actually based on Celine's experience, that was the age she was when she actually found herself flanked by two men at a speakeasy, one being her husband and one being her childhood sweetheart. Um, so initially there was this idea where, you know, I was too old and it didn't make sense for me to play, you know, mid twenties. Um, and then over time, she, she says that, you know, she realized that it, it, it is more, it was more interesting and it served the story that she wanted to tell to have the characters be a little bit older. And that's where I come in. I'm happy, I'm happy to play, you know, a, a, an agier performance of it. But I, it just speaks to what she was after. I think she wanted to tell a very adult story. Um, I'm so impressed by her own emotional maturity. I mean, I, it's, far surpasses what I was dealing with or thinking about um, at that time. But I, I do think that that was part of it. Yeah. As you were describing that, I was putting myself in that position at 25. I'm like, that might have just melted my brain. Like, I, I don't know I if know. I could have acted like I an know, adult. Me too. <laughs> How about if I turn that towards you as a performer individually is because like I'm a big believer that everything happens for a reason. And I know it must have been a bummer when the role didn't go your way the first time around. But now looking back, is there anything that makes you say like, wow, I am so glad it didn't work out then, but it wound up circling back at this point in my life and career? By the time I got the call out of the blue, almost a year after I initially had auditioned for it, I think there was this sense of like, well, you know, I'm just going to be me and I'm not going to. It's a, that kind of audition where you're not thinking so much about let me try to guess what they want and really trusting my own sense of like, if I were to really do this, 
because I was imagining in that moment, it's not, it's still, it's never going to be my job, but I want to take this moment and explore as an exercise. Like if I was actually doing this, how, how would I do it? And who, who is she in my mind? Um, there was no point in pretending at, at that point after so long. Um, and I really, I don't know what came over me that day. I think it was just lack of time. There was no time to, I don't know, engineer some kind of like performance or, or character that was like carefully thought of. I just had to read these scenes, um, spur of the moment with Celine and incredibly it, we just matched. I don't know. We like, we have, we have Inyan, like we, our souls matched in terms of what kind of movie she wanted to make and and in what way. Oh my God. I have so many follow-up questions. I must remember them all. First, I want to talk about uh, working with Celine because this is her first feature and I'm a big believer. She's going to go on to direct many, many more from here on out. So what is something that you're especially excited for more actors out there to get to experience as she makes more films? She has this uncanny ability to be so incredibly firm and decisive about what she wants, uh, what she wants out of a scene, what she wants in, out of a performance, cinematic composition, everything. It, it is really steadfast in her mind in this like beautifully unburdened way, especially for a, a first timer. Um, but with that, in terms of the actors, She's able to then have this beautifully slack tether in that within this very firm structure, she gives you full license to create and take ownership of the character. Like I really felt like even though I was playing a version of her, she was handing her over to me and saying, it's yours, it's yours, and I need to see what you are bringing to her. I, I need to see the the interiority of her soul through you. Um, and oh God, there's nothing better than that. That's, That's such an important balance to need to be able to strike. Yes. It's so hard. Yeah. And it's really hard even for masters with a lot more experience than her. I don't know what it is. She has supreme confidence and supreme trust. Um, and it's rarefied. Okay. Speaking of first-time feature filmmakers, this isn't the only film getting released this year with a first-time Helmer that you are in. We also have Problemista, which I absolutely love, from Julio Torres. Yes. I know they're, t they're two completely different types of filmmakers with very different styles, telling different stories. But do they have any shared qualities that maybe signal to you that even though this was their first time behind the lens of a feature film, like... They got it. I trust them. It is that same mix of knowing exactly what they want, but then the ability to admit when they don't know and being really comfortable in their discomfort um, of not knowing this. It's that it's that thing where it's like, I don't know. It's almost this is a, this. It's the ability to be so firm and supple and pliant at the same time, where you're ready to accept something that's different than what you had imagined. Um, that looking for that that thing that can happen on set in, in a take that wasn't planned. Um, and they just both have such clear voices and such specificity. I mean, cultural specificity too. And they're able to use that specificity in the name of telling a great story um, without you know, trying to 
contorted into something that feels like serviceable or like they're trying to explain some sort of cultural phenomenon or identity experience. I mean, it's all in the name of the story that they want to tell. Yeah. I love how they have such specificity in in their vision and the story that they're telling. Yet there's something so so like inviting and there's so much like gray area to explore, like especially with this one. One of my favorite parts of this movie is that, you know, it's not the the standard romantic drama comedy mold where I'm expected to be rooting for one particular thing to happen. Actually, I can I don't know if there's going to be an answer to this, especially with what you said before about how quickly you had to move with everything. But is there anything you could do via your performance to ensure that the audience doesn't wind up rooting for for one thing over the other, whether it's her husband versus her childhood friend, or even just her prioritizing herself over everything else. I think it was all, I mean, it's the writing. It's this ridiculously gorgeous script paints a very generous portrait, actually, of these three people. There are no villains. There's no yelling. There's no, I mean, there really isn't that kind of melodrama that we've seen before. Um, but and instead of that, we we just we have these three people who are just decent humans doing their best to be decent. But it's in that experience we're able to make some very close, complex observations about I'm about the human condition. Um, so I that was always part of it. I think we had conversations where we fully acknowledge that the movie lives and dies over this balance with the two guys and herself. It's never about, you know, Team Hezong or Team Arthur, although those would make some pretty excellent t-shirts. But it's more about, it, it, it's, it's about everything else. It's about just the experience of love and destiny and how certain choices that you make in your life can shape and mold your life as, as you know it. Um, and I just, I love that, that it's not, it's not about choosing a, a man to form your identity. Um, yeah. I feel like they should make those shirts, but it should be like half one and half the other. So you're always both. <laughs> yeah. Always. And I then it just says more on the back. Yeah. I would buy and wear that shirt all the time. I'm going to brand the rest of this interview spoiler territory, just in case anyone has not seen the movie by the time this releases. So for everyone out there, go see past lives in theaters, then come back and watch these last few minutes. So I wanted to focus on some of the the lengthy shots towards the end of the movie. And the first thing I'm especially curious about is what do you find more challenging? A scene where you are supposed to stand there for an extended period of time and look into the eyes of another actor mm -hmm. or something where, you know, is highly emotional and more dialogue driven for me I can honestly say it's those long shots of stillness and silence it's kind of like what it's like in movies when a person starts to sing and this idea when there are no words that can adequately explain how you feel then sometimes you break into song sometimes you stand in silence and that becomes its own music. I found that so gratifying and thrilling and so hard and brutally vulnerable making. Um, those long shots shot on 35 millimeter, no less. So there was a, a little bit, a lot of pressure um, to make the most out of every take we could get. It wasn't you know, digit, we didn't have an unlimited number of takes that we could take. 
Um, I mean, I'm really, and it's a testament to these other performers too, to, to both Teo and John, um, to, to go along for that. I mean, everyone had so much skin in the game and it was genuinely so much fun, such a joy to do those scenes. And it was, it was brutal. <laughs> it paid off big time. That is an exceptional, uh, beat right there. And so is the one that follows where you're by yourself walking back to the apartment where, like, I don't know what it was like from your perspective, but I watch that and I just see her like carrying literally everything she's been through her entire life with her, like feeling the weight of it all, but also processing and moving forward into the future. So what is it like doing something like that? And I don't know, I guess making sure every single ounce of that feels Im feels present, important and and positive. Yeah, I think it was so important that that last emotional release felt earned. And you could make the argument that it's a whole movie's worth of watching Nora try really hard not to cry. Um, and we were betting on what that payoff could be. And, and that was hard. It was, it was, it was a risk of um, trying to, to, paint this emotional arc that is about suppressing. It's about being an adult. It's about being, you know, graceful and, and being a nurturer, receiving all of the love that his home is giving her um, and Arthur as well. Um, and holding it as a strong, ambitious woman. Um, and then at the end, I, I think that moment, I mean, that, that moment was very unique in that that was one shot um, on a tracking dolly from the apartment to the Uber saying goodbye and then back again. And I didn't I don't think I really knew what was going to happen. It was that same that uncanny gift that is working with Celine. We had our marks. We knew technically what needed to happen on some level, but the rest was was left to us. I knew that there was going to be some kind of a cry but there's no way to rehearse a cry like that. You know, as much as I wished, oh my God, the night before, I don't think I slept at all. Just wishing that I could just go to a room and like rehearse that you can't, you know, you can't eke out tears and just, you ha that's something that can only happen in the moment. Um, so I, you know, myself included, I, we, I think we were all surprised to see how that was gonna manifest. I think that's one of the most cathartic cry scenes I've ever seen in a film. <laughs> Thank you. It, you know, it felt a little bit that way for me too. <laughs> it was something else. The whole movie is something else. I will tell everybody out there, if they're still with us, they should have seen the movie right by now, but tell everybody, you know, past lives in theaters everywhere on June 23rd. Congratulations on that. Congratulations on Problemista. Congratulations on Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse. Everything you. you've done in the past, everything that's coming your way in the future, come back on Collider Forces anytime you want. You. Thanks so much for having me. 